So joining me today is Kate Chima, the Director of Health Intelligence at the British Health Foundation. Kate has a background in health analysis uh, in the NHS, going back actually further than she uh, cares to remember. Her focus is on effective and meaningful use of health and care data to highlight inequalities and opportunities to improve care for millions of people with hearts and circulatory disease. Kate is also passionate about the benefit of high quality analysis can bring to bettering health care services for all and believes that investing in the development of health analysts can make utopia a reality. So we'll hear more about that shortly. So Kate, welcome to AMX Speaker. Delighted to have you join us. Thanks very much, John. Very pleased to be here. Fantastic. And Kate, on with the most important question we always ask all of our uh, guests is uh, Fika's always about a coffee and a cake with friends. Uh, what's your preference, tea or coffee, and what would be your favourite cake? I am definitely a tea drinker. Uh, never really got on with coffee. Um, and I'm a tea snob as well, John. Um, yeah. I have loose leaf Earl Grey every morning. Nice. Uh, so, uh, yeah, definitely tea. And for cake, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, who doesn't love all kinds of cake? But I'm a bit of a sucker for a fruit cake. And yeah. very much looking forward to my dad's Christmas cake, which he's already started to feed with a lot of brandy. Fantastic. Perfect combination. They go really well together there. I really recommend that. One of the best ones I've heard so far. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Kate, what we always try and do for, for our listeners is to get an idea of kind of some of the sort of journey that people have been on. And would you be able to give some of our listeners a sort of a, a bit of a walk through your career today, um, where, where you started and how you've ended up today and where you may be going to in the future? I mean, it's really interesting to hear that. Um, so stop me if I go on for too long. Um, I often say to people that I became an NHS analyst by mistake, uh, and it, it's not entirely untrue. So I graduated uh, undergraduate degree in 2002, and I had to pay the rent. Uh, so just took any job that came along, and I took a six-month maternity leave cover in a shared informatics services in Southampton. And that, as they say, kind of the rest is history, really. Um, that that was a really it, it, a bit of a baptism of fire, actually, as a job. I did all sorts of lots of little bits and pieces uh, for uh, primarily for this. I'm showing my age now, John, a primary care trust uh, and in the city. And I did everything from delayed discharges right the way through. It was just at the beginning of payment by results. So I was finding myself doing financial analysis and workforce. It was a really, really good uh, grounding. And there was enough work there so that when uh, when uh, Zoe, who I still know and worked with afterwards as well, came back from maternity leave, there was space for both of us to stay on in the role. Uh, from there, I was a bit of a poacher turned gamekeeper and went to the acute sector, uh, worked at the hospital for a couple of years, and then hopped around a little bit to a couple of other PCTs. Uh, uh, people who are have been in the system long enough to kind of cast their minds back. No surprises. The system, as now, was in flux. So PCTs were busy merging and uh, strategic health authorities were merging and non-merging and all sorts of things. So from there, I went on to a, um, a, a into a job at the strategic health authority that covered Kent, Surrey and Sussex, so southeast coast, as it, as it was known then. And that was really the kind of beginning of my journey more into the kind of quality and clinical analysis. What I've done before is very much performance focused uh, and working with, uh, so in 2008, um, quality observatories were formed off the back of the, um, the the ever so frequent reviews of the NHS done by the great and the good. So I think it was the Aradazi review that gave, gave rise to quality observatories. So I became a senior analyst in there. Uh, and as I said, looking really closely at clinical quality, which was a bit of a shift away. Uh, but I really, really enjoyed it because it brought me that much closer to the front line and care delivery, worked on some nice 
regional projects uh, like uh, uh, a project that was focused on increasing rates of uh, what was at the term at the time called normal births, but kind of helping to support particularly mums who'd maybe had a, a cesarean section beforehand have a, a vaginal delivery. So, you know, working closely with midwives and obstetricians, uh, but also engaging with mums-to-be as well. So really exciting project. Uh, and I got a real taste for it. And from there, started to look for opportunities that kind of kept me absolutely in that clinical quality space. Uh, and off the back of that, moved into um, uh, moved into a focus on patient safety, particularly. Um, still within the quality observatory, which by then had been subsumed into what is now South Central and West CSU. So const the constant churn of organisational change has been the background to my entire career. Uh, I did take a bit of a break around 2016 and uh, went to work for a charity for a short period of time and then a little healthcare consultancy startup, who actually I'm still involved with now. Um, so kind of developed a little bit more uh, again, really interesting kind of different views outside of the health systems, really similar challenges in many ways, um, but came back to head up the patient safety measurement unit uh, in 2017. And then finally, a couple of years later, uh, took the plunge back out of the NHS and came to work for the British Heart Foundation as their director of health intelligence. So it's been uh, a, a varied and eventful and very interesting period of my life. Is that fantastic? There's, that's the short version. Amazing, Joanna. Thanks for sharing that with us as well. And it just shows, you know, people always worry about change and the, and the different things that are happening. But with that, I think, comes the opportunity that you have. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I mean, my big takeaway, I guess, is that everyone, at every stage of my career, no one has said, we don't need good data. We don't need yeah. analysts. There's always a call for it. And I think the you know, the, the real kind of learning that I've taken away is that, you know, all, all the kind of technical skills that goes with that is absolutely crucial, but you've got to be able to describe it to people as well. So there's a translational piece. Yeah. And from my most junior analyst days, right the way through to, you know, director level gigs that I've got at the moment, that hasn't changed. I've had a translator role at every single one of those levels. So, you know, really, it's, a, it's you know, the, the analyst is an absolute linchpin in getting good clinical care, you know, making sensible decisions, long-term planning, you name it, anything that yeah. any kind of healthcare delivery system needs to do. If you haven't got a good analyst there, it's, you're going to have a problem. And having those dimensions about, you know, from a quality and a patient safety perspective as well, you can actually see the direct impact of what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. Clear line of sight. And I think I've, I mean, I've told plenty of my teams over the years, it, you've got to keep that in mind. That is, that's what will get you up in the morning. Is that clear line of sight from what you're doing to you know, to making things better for people? Inspiring. No, thanks for sharing that. That fascinating journey. That's Kate. That's really helpful. You you mentioned as well when we spoke last time that you you and the team I think are working on some health inequalities work. I believe the focus you mentioned was cardiovascular disease. Would you be able to tell sort of our listeners? Some of the work that you're doing, because I believe it's in partnership with the NHS, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it won't be any surprise to your listeners, John, that obviously the pandemic has hugely exacerbated health inequalities and cardiovascular disease because it's such a big group of diseases and so linked to uh, kind of wider determinants of health and lifestyle and things like that. Those, you know, the, the growth in inequality from a general society perspective, you see exactly the same thing happen in cardiovascular disease. So, here at the BHF, we're absolutely committed to ensuring that we um, narrow that gap uh, from a societal perspective, but also ensure that everybody gets 
equitable and fair treatment, irrespective of who they are or where they come from, where they live. Um, so we've been looking at health inequalities with that cardiovascular disease focus. Now, lots of great work has been done on CVD. Sorry, cardiovascular disease equals CVD. Just describe, explain that. For, easy to fall into the shorthand, isn't it? Um, Lots of great work has been done on that CVD health inequality piece, uh, but it does tend to be in quite specific uh, kind of focus areas. So you might look at the uh, the health, you know, the inequalities in obesity rates, for example, or the inequalities in premature mortality rates. Uh, we've worked with the strategy unit out of uh, Mids and Lanks CSU to look at cardiovascular inequalities across the whole pathway so that we really start to understand where, you know, we know that we've got huge inequality and premature mortality due to CVD. What's perpetuating that? Is it because we're not preventing CVD in the first place and people aren't getting the opportunity to, you know, to access that primary prevention? Or is it in the middle somewhere? We're not, you know, we're not fair and equitable in our treatment, for example. So really understanding where those visual, where those uh, inequalities lie. So we've worked with the strategy to visualise that uh, and you know, watch this space, some really exciting stuff coming very soon for ICBs in this area. Uh, and, and we can see really clearly the pattern is not quite what we expected uh, in that actually from a primary, we've been incentivising primary prevention around uh, uh, CVD for a really long time. And you can see that actually the gap is, is relatively pretty small between the richest and the poorest. Uh, uh, at that end of the pathway. But as you go through, those discrepancies start to creep in. So, for example, uh, you know, if you have heart failure, you're three times more likely to get that diagnosis in the emergency care pathway than, than people who, who aren't socioeconomically deprived, who are more likely to get it via a GP kind of elective uh, you know, best best practice kind of pathway. So it's in it's really in that diagnosis and treatment space where we see these inequalities begin to to get bigger and bigger, and that obviously has an impact on on eventual outcomes. So it's been hugely interesting and massively relevant to uh, to all of to all of the BHF's uh, work and kind of focus. Um, and we now want to extend that to look at eth look at it through an ethnicity lens, not just a socioeconomic one. And then obviously we mustn't forget the digital inequality element as well, which is something very close to my heart. It's mentioning, it's probably that pathway, isn't it? Yeah, you know, It looks great to see the great work at the very beginning paying off, mm -hmm. but we seem to drop the ball all the way through. That's the, yeah. That's, yeah, exactly. And, you know, from a, from a patient perspective, the patient doesn't see, does, and, you know, obviously, in primary prevention, it's primary care teams, it's pharmacists, etc. But the patient doesn't see that kind of silo. The patient yeah. experiences care longitudinally yeah. as, as their disease progresses. And you know, we have to think in that same way when we're trying to understand you know, the interventions that we need to think about. And you mentioned as well, just picking up on that bit, you mentioned about digital inequality there. What, what do you mean by that? And why are you so passionate about that thing? Um, I, I'm, I'm really passionate about it. You know, I'm a, I'm a card carrying member of the Geek Squad, so I've got a lot of tech. I've got three screens in front of me now. How many other devices? At least three or four just kind of sitting on my desk and God knows how much downstairs. Um, but not everybody is A, so lucky to be able to have access to that. Uh, and, and secondly, just may not want to or be able to use it. And I think we're moving more and more towards, 
and I'm not decrying it for a second. I think because you know digital can bring huge opportunity in terms of getting people the right information at the right time, uh, helping them manage their disease, so on and so forth. But we have a tendency to think that it's a blanket panacea for a, for everybody, and that's just not the case. And I, you know, I don't want to see people left behind because we're focused on a means of delivery rather than who we're delivering to. Um, I mean, a, a really good example. So at the moment is uh, we're doing some work around you know, high blood pressure or hypertension. It's really important to the BHF, huge. It's like the single biggest intervention. If you brought everyone's blood pressure down, it would be the single biggest impact for CVD that you can that you can make. So it's hugely important. And one of the one of the kind of strides forward in doing that is helping people self-manage with their you know home blood pressure cuffs and recording their um, their blood pressure and then sending that in all a digital you know sending that to their GP all a digital um, uh, process you know supported by various apps and obviously the 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 actual monitors themselves fantastic it's worked really well some of the early evaluation from the bp at home uh, project run by nhs england is really positive but there will be people who can't access that so we can't be wholly reliant um, and i think we need to to really understand where the barriers and where the enablers are uh, for digital digitally enabled health uh, and we're actually currently doing some work more focused on heart failure uh, on on digital health we've undertaken an audit with with um uh, looking at uh, apps and uh, you know both both in terms of what's on your mobile phone, but also uh, you know linking into uh, electronic health records and things like that around heart failure and how 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 patients have been involved in developing some of that uh, and also what the again barriers and enablers. It's all about helping to helping to understand people's behaviour and how we can how we can impact that. Fascinating, Sorry, that was that was very so, waffly. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy to jump to digital, isn't it, and think it's, it's the sort of big panacea and the, the benefits that it can release. But thinking about the wider uh, population that can and can't access, yeah, huge. And I guess that Absolutely. kind of leads into, I suppose, the wider aspects of equality, diversity, and inclusion, and that. And look at that. What was in your take? Uh, what's the British Health Foundation sort of EDI strategy? Is there anything you have to share with our listeners on that as well? Yeah, we got. I mean, uh, the British Heart Foundation is first and foremost a research funder, um, and obviously, you know, quite, you know, it's a it's a big charity. It's quite influential. If you don't have one of our shops on your high street, uh, you're not living in a very big place. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, it, it's absolutely incumbent on the British Heart Foundation to use some of that soft power to really influence and, and focus. You know, because this is this isn't just about equality, diversity, and inclusion. This is about justice, right? This is social social justice. So we actually um, published our EDI strategy in May of this year. So still quite fresh, quite new. If people want to check it out, I'm sure we can make the link available. Um, and it has really kind of three focus areas. One of them is obviously on the BHF itself, because you know you can't you can't say that you're committed to EDI and seek to influence others if you haven't got your own house in order. So you know, as an employer, you know we want to ensure that everyone has the the same opportunities to progress and advance. Uh, within the organisation, um, obviously, I've, I've talked about the influencing and, and raising awareness of how of the inequality. So the kind of work that I've just described, the, anal the analysis that we undertook uh, with with the strategy unit is is a part of that. So we're, we've committed to uh, you know publicly making available our assessment of what health and what inequalities look like for people with heart and circulatory disease, and and then use that to influence government and the NHS and 
everyone else across the UK that we can uh, to make that change. And then thirdly, obviously, as a research funder, we want to ensure we've got as much representation and inclusivity within the cardiovascular research community, but also within our people who participate in research so that, you know, we're not setting ourselves up for disparity in the future by not having representative participants in clinical trials, for example. So those those three core issues are at the heart of our EDI strategy. And I'm, I'm, I won't kind of go into all the detail if people want to kind of follow up on, on how we're planning to do that. Uh, I can I'll make that link available so people can have a read. That's really good. I like that piece about you need to sort it out yourself first in your Definitely. organization. It's really important. Yeah, yeah. That's really good advice. And Kate, there's also all that work you're doing around the cardiovascular workforce. You mentioned when we spoke previously, you said there's some work going on in that area specifically, uh, which is a really important area for the workforce. What what challenges do you have in, in undertaking that research? And I was wondering from an NHS perspective, is there anything more we can do to support you guys? Oh, yeah, that's been a real toughie. So, I mean, everyone understands, I think, that you know, the workforce the crisis isn't too strong a word, I don't think, um, that the NHS is, is looking at at the moment. And certainly for... I mean, it was all, you know, you saw it in the headlines last week, right? Kind of record numbers of people on cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery, waiting lists, uh, huge, you know, very long ambulance response times for, you know, for heart attacks and strokes. So, you know, serious stuff. Um, and underpinning that really is a workforce issue. So it's something that we're really focused on. We have, you know, we've worked with NHS Digital and others who've been super helpful in helping us get to some of this data, but it's not disaggregated enough for us just to look at a cardiovascular workforce. So it is, it, it, as ever, John, boils down to getting the data in the first place. So we're, yeah, we're, yeah. we're looking now to go out to, to individual trusts, individual organisations and ask them about uh, their cardiovascular workforce. And bear in mind, that's a, as I said, it's a big group of diseases. So there's a lot of professionals involved. It's not just doctors and nurses, although we'd like some more granularity on that. Um, it's also physiotherapists doing cardiac rehab. It's also um, physiologists who do a lot of the, because the heart is you know, a lot of electricity involved. Um, you know, so I, undertaking those critical diagnostic steps right at the beginning. So understanding it again across the whole pathway is absolutely crucial so that we can understand not just not just where the shortages are, but potentially the kind of interventions that we might be able to champion uh, to, to make sure that any investment in the cardiovascular workforce specifically gets the most bang for its buck. Um, and, you know, obviously we can't do that by ourselves. We have to work with partners um and you know and you know those part those partners are everywhere i've already mentioned uh, nhsd but obviously health education england who've been absolutely fascinating with some of their you know, understanding some of their work and predicting where the workforce is going to go in the future and you know where it's needed most um and uh, you know we we need to make sure again coming back to the edi question we need to ensure that that workforce is representative of the population that it serves so it's a huge area to get involved with and we're just kind of scraping the surface at the moment uh, but I think you know, it's coming back to your question about whether you know, how the NHS could support us just be open to the conversation actually we're really passionate about this um, and think that we can help make a difference so actually the question is how can we help you as much as it is how you can help us and support those, you know, good decisions are based on having the good data. And if you don't have the entire spectrum of what you need, then yeah, fix your yeah. decisions. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and that sort of nicely leads on to. I know you've got a, a really good 
uh, data science team there at, at BHF. And I was just wondering, I think you're, you mentioned as well that you're hosted by, is it the HCI UK? Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I lead a team that's within the BHF. So okay. uh, health intelligence is, is, is part of the organisation. But we work really closely with confusingly, the BHF Data Science Centre, which is funded, wholly funded by the British Heart Foundation, but is hosted by HDR UK, Health Data Research UK. Um, So, but we obviously work really closely with them because they are, you know, first and foremost there for uh, researchers to, and and it's it's a trusted research environment model. So, you know, data is not disseminated out researchers and us you know we're kind of in that group too we go and work within those environments uh, across all the nations of the UK actually so it's not just obviously there's there's the trust research environment that NHS digital look after for England but there are equivalents in Wales and Scotland as well that we've we've worked with so that we can get as much as possible a whole UK picture um combines I mean John it's like for a jobbing analyst like me, it's kind of like walking into a sweet shop because uh, there's everything that you could want. All, all this stuff that I, you know, five, ten years ago, you couldn't get. Give your eye teeth just to have a look at, let alone play with, is kind of is, is sitting there. Um, so that's primary. There's primary care data extract linked to secondary care vaccination data. Um, uh, the the clinical audits that are undertaken in cardiovascular space, so which covers you know, heart failure, congenital heart disease, so on and so forth. Um, so that you can get a really true picture of uh, of what's going on. You can look, as I said, sorry to bang on about pathways, but you can start to build up pictures of whole pathways. Incredibly, incredibly uh, useful. And obviously for us who are living with now the indirect effects of the pandemic, absolutely crucial to have that kind of level of detail so that we can start to get a handle on you know what's happening and where and how we can how we can help to make it better so um yeah some really innovative work coming out of that you know, I, and you know my team has been involved in some of it but most of it is coming out of you know really brilliant researchers uh in in uh, universities across the uk Fantastic, so, isn't it? so more to follow, hopefully. Than that. Loads to follow, loads to follow. There's loads of stuff that's going into preprint at the moment, so it's still looking for a journal to find. But thankfully, right. and again, silver lining from the pandemic, I think, is that this stuff is now able to come out really quickly, and you can you can you know, get a feel for for new research without having to wait however many months until a journal either picks it up or it's gone through the review process. Obviously, it comes with a caveat. Access. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. And then finally, in the introduction that we, we mentioned at the very beginning with yourself, you said you, you you feel very strongly about, you know, investing in development of health analysts, which I really, you know, fully support that and it's absolutely vital uh, to make that utopia a, a reality. What advice are you thinking for, for some of our future data analytical leaders on, on this sort of listening to the podcast? What sort of investments are you making and that they should be thinking about making for their teams uh, to support professionalisation? Do you have any advice that you can share with them? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think I'll be giving anything over and above what many of your previous contributors have have, John. I mean, the first and foremost among them is time, time to train, time to network. I think, I mean, personally speaking, I've benefited hugely from being part of an analytical community. And even though, even after I left the health service, I've still been very welcome in that, in that community. And it's been hugely, hugely useful. Um, 
so so I mean I'm a, I ensure that my team have time to go and you know kind of follow things that they're interested in and passionate about and the lessons that come back with them from that time isn't you know it's, it's always well spent uh, and we as a, as a team benefit from from their from individuals kind of going out and doing slightly different things I think again for us and part of this is for us has been born out of necessity but it's been so valuable has been the collaboration across different organizations and what we've heard when we've collaborated is that obviously we've you know huge benefits massive expertise particularly with with colleagues in the health service uh, you know, massive expertise access to data new ways of doing things we've learned so much but that 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 goes two ways and i think you know certainly we've heard from some of our collaborators that the you know the different world, a slightly different world that the BHF operates in, you know, the fact that we have to think about how, which which minister are we going to try and target for this? You know, that's not something that, you, that certainly none in none of my NHS jobs is something that we would have thought about. So, you know, it's it, it, different views and different ways of looking at things um, and uh, thinking about the huge, the really varied audiences who will be looking at and potentially acting on the analysis that you put in front of them i think there's 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 massive value in in both directions in those collaborations um and you know for my team it certainly kind of opened their eyes into the pos- into possibilities for future development should we go with that um so those those are my kind of two biggies um and yeah i mean i could i could i could go on john but i'll i'll leave it there because i'm aware that you probably are running out of time <laughs> Fantastic. No, thanks for sharing that. No, really fantastic advice. I think, you know, just, just to recap there, I mean, that constant change you mentioned at the very beginning about your career journey, that was fascinating about, you know, look at it as an opportunity for everybody. There's so much opportunity out there. They'll never be short of analysts to making good decision making. Mm-hmm. But that importance you mentioned about the translation, I think was a really key thing about, you know, always being a translator is a really, really key role. And then you mentioned as well, which I really like, that clear line of sight, having that clear line of sight on what you're, what you're actually working on. I think it's really, really powerful. And then I, mean, I think also the di- digital inequality thing, you know, that's a very easy one for us to jump and dig towards the answer. Yes, it is, but think about the inequalities that you could be making worse. So think about that really careful. I think I didn't realize that, you know, the blood pressure, for example, lowering that has the biggest impact as well. So that's probably a fascinating area for some analysts. And then finally, I think just, I think, you know, that the investment analysts, I think absolutely, I totally agree. I think that time aspect for training, uh, for networking, and most importantly, as you mentioned, collaboration is absolutely fantastic. No, thanks for sharing those research sort of insights, I think, for yourself being really, really good. And and finally, Kate, you know, outside of your passion, obviously, for uh, insightful analytics and moving the uh, sort of professionalization agenda forward, how do you relax and what do you do to relax? Um, I walk really, really long distances across oh. bits of England. Um, I did a, my, pro, my crowning achievement is 100 kilometre non-stop, it took me just over 25 hours, which I did oh. earlier this year. But that's the kind of endurance stuff. But yeah, it, it's a Ultra beautiful walking. place. Ultra walking, yeah. I don't think I could run it. Some people do, but I know I'm not built for that. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world that we live in, and the best way to see it is on foot. So fantastic. And, and Kate, how can we follow you on uh, Twitter? So I'm on Twitter at Katie Chima, K A T Y C H E E M A, um, and you know it's it's a bit of a range of uh, you know, health analytics, heart and circulatory disease, and the odd bit of walking long distance walking um so yeah very awesome. happy to see people there brilliant fantastic we'll share that link as well and also the uh, visualization of socioeconomic inequalities 
Let me see HD progress and pathways in that paper. Yep. We'll get that, that link shared as well and then your EDI link as well. But no, thank you very yep. much for joining okay. us on Pika. Thanks very much, John. Lovely to see you. So I'd like to thank our speaker for joining us today and for everybody else tuning in to this podcast. Uh, look forward to seeing you in the future.